everyone, and welcome back to listeners following along with the series we are conducting centered around women and leadership. My name is Kate Radford, and I serve as the Associate Director for Leadership Education and Development in the Center for Student Leadership and Engagement at Clemson University. And I am excited to be back with you for this final week in my role as guest host for this series for the NASCA Leadership Podcast. Over the last two weeks, we have had an opportunity to delve into Dr. Julie Owen's text, We Are the Leaders We've Been Waiting For, Women and Leadership Development in College, due out in June 2020 from Stylus Publishing. We started with a one-week, one-on-one conversation with Julie about the text in week one, had an outstanding group conversation last week about the roles of narratives, counter-narratives, and courageous conversations in leadership education, and we will round out the series today by discussing Women in Leadership Development in College, a facilitation resource developed as a companion to the book. I am excited to introduce four fabulous guests today, beginning with welcoming back Dr. Jennifer Pigza, who is the director of the Catholic Institute for LaSallian Social Action, the Center for Community Engagement and Place-Based Justice, and adjunct assistant professor of leadership at St. Mary's College of California. Jennifer calls herself both a practice-oriented scholar and a scholarly practitioner. Her work and writing focus on critical pedagogy, leadership, critical reflection, and institutionalizing community engagement. She is the lead editor of the forthcoming book we are discussing today, Women in Leadership in College, a facilitation resource. Also with us is Adrian Bitten. Adrian is a doctoral student in the Higher Education and Student Affairs Program at The Ohio State University. Prior to pursuing her PhD, she taught several leadership classes and served as a leadership educator with co-curricular leadership programs, including a women in leadership cohort. We also welcome Danielle Reynolds. Danielle is the Assistant Director for Student Learning and Leadership at the Ginsburg Center for Community Service and Learning at the University of Michigan. Danielle contributed three modules for the facilitation model that we'll be discussing today. And finally, Dr. Tricia Teig, Trisha is a teaching assistant professor in the Colorado Women's College Leadership Scholars and Pioneer Leadership Programs at the University of Denver. Trisha applies critical feminist pedagogy to teaching leadership in experiential classroom environments. So welcome everyone. Um, let's go ahead and try to get to know you a little bit before we delve into the resource. And I wanna turn it over to Jennifer because she had an awesome question that I would love to pose to get us started today. Sure, well this recording as many will know is being done during our shelter in place uh, related to COVID-19. So we're all stuck in our physical spaces, whatever those are. Um, and for our warm up today, I thought we could ask a different kind of question um, that my colleague Ryan Lamberton introduced with our students. And that is, uh, what is your soul home? So not where do I live, where do I work, or where was I born? But like, what's your soul home? Like, where is the place uh, what, what is the condition? Who are the people that just make your soul feel at home? So I thought we could get started with what is your soul home? So I'm going to jump in first. This is Trisha, and I absolutely love this question. I told Jennifer yesterday when she told us about it that I was definitely going to steal it and use it with my students. And I think for me, my soul home is not a place, but a place in orientation with a, with a people or a person. And so, for example, one of my soul homes is definitely the Texas Hill Country, where my two best friends live, but also it's a space where I went to grad school. And every time I go back there, at the food, the smell, everything about it just makes me feel home. Um, and also... 
I am in a long distance relationship and have been for years. And both of us are, are kind of nomads and we've lived lots of different places, but never in the same place. And so one of my soul homes is definitely with my partner because where he is, is where home is. So that, those are a couple of mine. Um, Danielle, do you have an answer to this one? Yes, I do. Um, I, I love trees. Um, and so thinking about what it means to be rooted, um, thinking about um, the fruits of trees really kind of um, indicating what's happening with the soil and what's happening in the body, that I really love trees as a metaphor in general. Um, and I think that one of my soul homes is a tree, and it's my, my aunt's mango tree in Jamaica. Um, I've had so many really great memories underneath that tree eating my weight in mangoes. Um, that's something that's really important to me. Um, and I, I miss my family dearly. And I think that I'm fit, feeling the physical distance really greatly, both my family that lives here in the U.S. and also my family that lives abroad. And so I'm definitely missing um, my people and knowing that usually when I'm underneath that tree, I'm not just eating mangoes alone. Um, I'm usually with other people, whether they're cousins, aunts, uncles, family, friends, um, and so really feeling the community that's there um, and also needing to reiterate that I have a deep commitment to mangoes um, and really missing um, that um, right now, too. Adrian, what are your thoughts? Oh, Danielle, we connect so much on the food and the travel. Um, so when I think about my soul home and the place where I feel most at home, it's often around a table um, sharing food from different places with uh, my friends and my family and just being in community with one another as we share a meal. I'm a dual citizen and was born in Israel. So um, particularly Israeli food um, is something that I just love to eat and takes me back to being home and with um, the, that side of my family. And Jennifer, since you asked this question, tell us what your soul home is. Yeah, I think, um, so, so many places could be soul home, but actually what occurred to me as we were contemplating this, um, getting ready for today was really thinking about uh, this particular retreat center in outside of Baltimore in Western Maryland uh, and um, just the rolling hills. It's a place that I went on retreats as a college student. Uh, it's a place that where I was working professionally right out of college where I would also go for retreats and professional development. Um, and so that place is, uh, is a soul home for me kind of as the beginning spot of so much of who I am as an adult. Um, it's also, you know, it's, it's these rolling hills of, of the kind of foothills of the Appalachians and uh, is really similar to the landscape of where I grew up in Pennsylvania. And when I visited the um, Eastern Europe for the first time and we drove through uh, Czech Republic and Poland and I just thought no wonder my ancestors were attracted to Western Pennsylvania because it looked so much like their home country. So there really is something I think to soul home and what attracts us there. Um, yeah, yeah. So Kate, you don't get uh, you don't get a free pass on this one. Uh, what's what's your soul home? Fair enough, fair enough. Um, I think for me, it is kind of a an activity more so. So I think being out on a boat in open water, so not on a lake, um, 
ocean water. Um, and there's a difference for me there. Uh, I grew up outside of Baltimore. Um, so Jennifer, I hear you on some that retreat center. I think I might know what you're talking about. Um, and um, yeah, spending time on the water, sort of like just every single, like one of my senses sort of being engaged in that space of like, I can sit here and think about like the smell of the, the salty air and the like warmth of the sun. And um, there's just so many great memories of being out on the water. It's one of my favorite places to be. And also something that I think I, that I share that's really special with my dad, um, like time spent with him on a boat growing up. Um, and yeah, it just, it feels like home and any opportunity I have to do that feels like home. So I love that question. I'm with Trisha. I'm going to steal it <laughs> Use that with our students as well. So thank you all for sort of letting us into those places and spaces in your life. Um, I want to spend just a few minutes as we start to talk about the facilitation resource and why it's important. Um, Julie was able to give us a lot of great insight in week one about the importance of the text, but I'm, I'm curious to hear from you all about women in leadership and the uniqueness in that of the facilitation guide. So Jennifer, we all know that questions of women in leadership are everywhere. What headlines in today's news make this topic relevant for you? Yeah, I think when we were prepping for today, we were just like saying, and this, and this, and this is happening, and this is happening. And so, you know, some of the big ones right now would be kind of uh, major country leadership during uh, a pandemic. And, you know, Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand, Angela Merkel of Germany, and Tsai Ing-wen of Taiwan, and people saying, are countries that are led by women uh, faring better? Um, mm. Why might that be? And so why is that? Is that really true? Is it just the way it looks? You know, um, that kind of question. Um, women's roles during this stay-at-home time, you know, whether it's about how gender roles are more amplified perhaps in a stay-at-home period, um, particularly in a heterosexual environment, but also what happens it at work for women who are perhaps also dealing with what's happening at home and also trying to exercise leadership um, in the workplace and professionally. Um, in the news, you see, you know, who's going to be Joe Biden's Democratic running mate? And they are, uh, all the top runners are women. Um, some are women of color. Um, so what, what's revealed kind of in those conversations? And what would it be like to be uh, a female running mate to a person who's been accused of sexual assault? Um, that's, those are like really big questions that make us see that, um, it's always a good time to talk about women and leadership, but, but there's a lot happening that I think particularly um, make it important for us to figure out how to create spaces and practices with our students to talk about some of these questions that emerge through that. Yeah, absolutely. I kept thinking as I was reading through the book, like all this was written in the midst of Me Too and Time's Up and this era of all this stuff that has been going on and sort of, um, I think Julie describes it as a, a cultural reckoning. And I was like, yes, that is, you know, that language. It, it spoke to me of thinking about some of these movements and how they've really um, made a positive difference and a positive change and how hopefully they've also positively impacted our, our thoughts around leadership as a society and the ways that um, particularly women have engaged in some of those movements. So I appreciate you kind of pulling to the surface some of those topics for us. Yeah. 
and we're excited later towards the end we hope we have time to loop back to some of that so that we can riff as a little ensemble here about what we think uh, about some of those issues that would be wonderful i hope we get to do that yes um well jennifer what would you say is kind of a big question but is sort of the purpose of the text yeah so i think you know we just talked about like the current events that make it's um, very relevant to have conversations about women and leadership. And I think what's specifically um, helpful about this text is, you know, for folks who are practitioners out in the world, like we're, we're doing a lot of different things. Um, and for folks whose perhaps their primary role is even as a classroom instructor, a faculty member, um, having a, some concrete tools that help us identify or kind of dive into things with students around identity and intersectionality, disrupting kind of normative assumptions, um, peeling away the layers of, of um, what we think is truth and seeing that perhaps a lot more is contested than we thought. Um, and so what I think this does is uh, that all of the contributors to the volume have really helped us translate some of these big complex ideas into doable things, <laughs> uh, doable, uh, approachable activities that um, can be used in a bunch of different settings, but that, um, that don't really shy away from how hard some of these and complex some of these questions and issues are around women and leadership development. Absolutely. Yeah, I, um, I, I own about myself that sometimes I jump to the action part, but I really felt myself doing that with the book, like, okay, all this is such great information um, made me think about so much, but I was like, how am I going to use this? How am I going to use this? So I love that this is such a practical tool um, that I think often as leadership educators, we lack, you know, I think there's often not, you know, there's not a lot of guidebooks out there, facilitation resources like this that really give us um, tools and, and tactics to use. And I think it's going to be a wonderful resource for leadership educators. So that's really exciting. Well, Will you talk a little bit about how it is connected to Julie's text, the We Are the Leaders We've Been Waiting For, Women in Leadership Development in College? Yeah, sure. When, when Julie and I initially conceived of the um, facilitation resource, we thought of it as uh, kind of like the, the teacher's manual, if you will, to her, to her text um, that you could kind of like, we're doing chapter one today and you would read chapter one and then you could choose from multiple modules that you could perhaps utilize for that. And what we realized along the way is that is a perfect way to utilize the resource and it definitely still um, kind of goes chapter to chapter, you know, through the text of Julie. Um, but it really is also a standalone. So if you, you can just look at the sections by topic and theme and, um, and be able to use it. So again, whether you're a faculty member, um, someone whose full-time job and gig is around leadership development, leadership education, somebody who dips into it periodically, or maybe you're a women and gender studies faculty member um, or work in a women's resource center. I think, um, I think what we, well, we, I know what we did was do our best to try to make it useful to a bunch of different folks. And so I guess we'll find out as time goes on, <laughs> right? If that's ultimately true. But um, for Adrian, Danielle, and Trisha, who are here on the call with us today, um, they put some really complex, good thinking and doing into their work, as did all of the other contributors. Um, so I do have a lot of um, confidence that it's going to be useful to a lot of people. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's dive into some of those um, with some of those contributing authors who are here with us today. I think um, they have 
that's a great insight that I want to hear from. Um, excited to chat with you all. Um, could you maybe start with why you were excited to be a part of this project? Sort of what conversations did you hope it would generate? Maybe, Danielle, if you want to kick us off. Yeah. Um, so like with a lot of things for me, my excitement actually came first from a place of outrage. Um, and so I have been for the past few years mailed a pamphlet for a leadership development thing that focuses on, I'm using air quotes, even though no one can see them, um, leadership with a woman's touch. Um, and in this pamphlet, there are a lot of different stereotypes around women, um, a lot of things like how to manage your emotions or how to not come across as aggressive. And every time I see this male thing, I get very frustrated um, because I see the different ways that folks are trying to um, have people pay money um, to be told that their emotions have no place in their leadership practice um, or that their identity as a woman um, is something that needs to be um, almost mitigated in order to be a successful leader. And so I get frustrated every time I see that. And so when I, the opportunity came up to create something that might give students um, a more inclusive or robust uh, way to develop their leadership practice and their gender identity, I knew that I really wanted to be a part of that. Um, and I think that for me also seeing that in different spaces that I've been in, there might have been, okay, well, let's talk about women and it comes from a very um, cisgender woman who is of means, kind of like a room of her own kind of um, lens that someone might put onto leadership development. And I know that for me, being a black woman from a working class background, that a lot of those things didn't feel like they were actually accessible to me um, or I didn't see the value in them. And so wanting to make sure that there was space for um, students to really uh, develop for themselves and also to do it through a lens of intersectionality. And so really wanting to bring that to the space um, that we were, I hope that we were able to create some of that um, in the resource, but I know that that's something that made me really excited um, was because we know that there, some of those things don't exist and um, really wanting to create what we want leadership education to look like in the future. I, love I wonder that. what yeah. other people brought in. I, I totally agree with so much of that, Danielle. And I, I think the, the place of outrage I can just relate to in so many ways because I remember part of the reason that I was brought on was because Julie and I were having a conversation at Leadership Educators Institute when we were in Florida. And we were having a whole conversation about the fact that there weren't any foundational resource texts that allowed us to dive into the complexities and nuances of this topic. And at the most, there are surface level things or things that are focused in specific spaces like corporate women's leadership in corporate spaces or um, thinking about things in only one way and only one vein. And I have found that to be problematic about how we talk about leadership for a really long time. Um, and so I was just really excited to join the project because Julie was so excited to create her text. And then when I got to learn about the facilitation resource with Jennifer in that same space and say, oh, and we're co-creating this, uh, this collaborative effort of leadership educators who have been using all sorts of different tools and having this conversation in different institutions for years. 
put it all together and that's the moment that we're going to do this right now I, yes i am in and what what can i do <laughs> yeah i love that Trisha, and I totally agree. I think that um, that is so much about why I was excited to be a part of this project. I also think back at sort of like my own moments first taking a gender and leadership class as an undergraduate student and just having this aha moment or this light bulb moment of feeling like, oh my gosh, this is like really speaking to my experience in a way that, um, I had maybe questioned before in terms of some of the other leadership classes that I'd been taking. And so um, in my previous job, as I've been working with a women in leadership cohort, it's been so awesome to see sort of those light bulb moments as students put together um, or have the ability to put words to their own experiences and notice that it's not something that's um, a reflection of themselves, but actually a larger susceptibility systemic system um, that's creating some of these things. I think I'm still interested in um, and am so excited about this book because I often am still curious about the conversations that I'm having with women um, in terms of being able to distinguish is what I'm experiencing because of my gender identity or because of my personality as an individual. And I think um, these modules from the facilitation resource are really great examples um, and activities that can help um, women sort of have that conversation with themselves and with each other in building community um, to work through some of some of those questions and um, oppression that they may feel in leadership spaces. You know, I'll say for me, and I, I wasn't thinking I was going to answer in this portion of the question, but, you know, I think <laughs> Um, you know, Julie and I did, a, we were really conscious about um, cultivating a group of people to contribute to this volume who are, who many of whom represent kind of uh, younger professionals, younger scholars, and um, the kinds of things you just described, Adrian, um, the kinds of questions that you even had in, in college that created an awakening are, they were like not even present in my own college experience, I'm over 50. So, um, so we really wanted to just, it's part about speaking to the moment, but it's also part about speaking to, um, there's a lot more that we're capable of diving into. And I think with each generation, we're able to dive into it more and more deeply and more complexly. Um, and so how cool is it to, try to be as student-centered as possible in how we're thinking about these things um, and to bring folks in from a variety of life perspectives and social identities to do that. Um, we, I mean, I think it, it helps students from those multiple places of identity step into conversations too. So, so even this has been cool. This is cool just talking to y'all. So thank you. <laughs> and we're not even Jenna. done yet. <laughs> I agree. Okay, well, I think that that really speaks to something that you were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, um, how often do we necessarily always have some of these tangible resources? I think what makes LEI and other conference leadership focused conferences so exciting is that you're like with your people and the people who want to engage in this way. And oftentimes at institutions, you may be the only person who's dedicated to doing 
um, you know, leadership development worker serving as a leadership educator in a particular office or department. And so being able to connect with colleagues across the country and um, from different places and perspectives is so exciting and helps freshen my own thinking about the concepts that we're doing in addition to the conversations. Um, and when students challenge me um, through the, the work that we do together. I couldn't agree more. I feel like this has, these conversations have just like reinvigorated me in ways that um, I did not anticipate just being able, you know, like you said, to talk with your people about about this and to, to think about things with a fresh perspective. I kept thinking as y'all were talking about sort of some of these approaches to women in leadership that we've seen in the past, um, I shared with Julie in the first podcast that um, we will be changing the name of our conference that we hold on our campus beginning next year because we have a women's leadership conference and this women and leadership distinction, very clear and different and important to me now, um, just to think about that in that way. Um, but I, I reflect back to some planning meetings that we've had for the, that conference over the years, and um, it always sticks with me that there was a student one year while we were planning who was like, I just, I don't want this thing to be the self-magazine of conferences. Like, it doesn't need to be, you know, like the, here's how you get this person to like you. Take this quiz about, the, you know, she was like, I want this to be real, and I want this to be about things we're really facing, and so much of what I see out there feels like the self-magazine of conferences, and so... Danielle, the thing, the thing you were mentioning at the beginning made me think of that as well. But um, there's so much more to dig into and so much, um, so many meaningful conversations to have around our socialization and expectations and um, the practice of leadership. So uh, I'm thankful for the, this text and for the facilitation resources, ways for us to just continue to have that conversation. Well, this might be some kind of reiterate some of the things we've talked about, but I'm curious to know from you all sort of why does it matter to focus on women and leadership development? We've certainly talked about some of that, but why do we still need to even ask this question? Yeah, this is Trisha, and I, uh, I get sad that we're still asking the question of asking that question <laughs> is my immediate response to that yeah. uh, because to me, and that's because I kind of swim in this all the time, but it is so clear to me that this is an intertwined uh, issue. And it matters because we cannot disconnect or disassociate the concept of leadership without gendered and racialized prescriptions. And so because leadership is a social construct and so are all of these identities, how they interact has to be a part of the conversation of leadership education. And we can't have a conversation around how women are doing on our campuses and thinking about leadership and not think about how they're intertwined based on the systems and structures that they're facing. And that's true for women in our, our, um, our groups, but it's also true for thinking about it from a very much so intersectional lens. Like Danielle was mentioning earlier, we have to consider our own identities as leadership educators and how we're coming into that space. We have to consider all of this conversation in terms of what we're doing in implementation of the, the development programs that we're doing. Um, for example, I am a straight cisgender white woman and I currently lead, I'm a faculty director for a women's leadership minor that is for first-generation college student women who identify either as first-generation or as women of color. And so my identities in the classroom space, if I don't talk about those, if I don't deconstruct them for myself, if I don't 
discuss that with me and with them and then also discuss their experiences, then we aren't having an honest conversation about leadership development. It all interacts together. And I don't know, I think if anybody who asks the question, why does this matter, um, isn't reading the headlines, isn't noticing what we still haven't deconstructed about how leadership is not accessible to everyone in the same way. And so we need to disrupt that narrative. And the way to do that is to start having these conversations. You're over here getting so, lots of snaps from me. I agree. Yeah, I mean, I think I, um, sort of a funny and not funny story. I've had to sort of make it funny to get through it, one of those things. But we, I, again, this conference we have on campus, every year I get a response. We send the campus-wide email about it. Every year I get at least one, usually several, uh, messages back from typically a male identified student on campus who says, well, where's the men's leadership conference? Why do we, why do we need to have this? Um, and it, I say it's become a joke because there has been, there was a student one year who sent that email and, you know, I didn't, I didn't reply within a moment's notice. And, um, he wrote back again and said, your move, uh, because I hadn't replied. And so we have this big joke in our office now that we're going to have the your move when men's leadership conference on campus. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think you're right. Like it's it, the first year I got that response, I was really hurt and really um, shocked by it. Like, how could people not think that this conference is necessary, that this conversation is not necessary? Um, but it's out there that you know, every year now it's I've sort of um, just become numb to it or accustomed to that. that I'm going to get that response from someone that, that asks, is it really necessary? We really need to have a conference where we're focusing on specific identity. And um, so I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, and if you, I think if you're getting that, sorry, sorry, Danielle, go ahead. I was just going to say, if you're getting that response, then until you stop getting that response, we need to keep talking about it. Yes, <laughs> exactly. We will have this conference until I sit out and we don't get that response. Exactly. And yet, I think that there's, there's that conversation, but recognizing that that conversation is not the end of the conversations. And so even with this, we we're wrestling and I think I continue to wrestle with what does it mean for us to talk about women and leadership um, when we know that there aren't a lot of resources or um, lots of great work around what it means for folks who are gender non-conforming or trans and that even that gender identity also impacts the ways that you might practice or understand leadership. Um, and so how can we make sure that our conversation around women in leadership is not just we're part of the cisgender only women's club and everyone else, you're not welcome here. But um, feminist practice means that we are dismantling gendered structures. Um, and so we are doing the same thing when it comes to um, this gender binary that we have been given in a lot of ways. And to say, what does it look like for us to lead outside of that binary um, and outside of maybe some of the things that we've been socialized around? Um, and so just thinking, yes, that conversation is important. And we can have that conversation and recognize that that's not the only conversation, that there are others that we need to be um, having as well. I think you make an excellent point and bring up kind of the idea of tensions in my mind between what we need to focus on in terms of a critical lens of we, we have to talk about specific identities like women and gender nonconforming identities because we have to recognize that we are living in oppressive systems and in order to 
disrupt those systems, we have to center marginalized voices. But at the same time, if you think about it from a postmodern perspective, if we consider gender as a broader space and it's more fluid, then we can have a conversation around disrupting the idea of needing a specific binary and terminology in general. But sometimes those two ideas are in conflict. And so that's, I think that's definitely part of what's included in this resource, um, the facilitation resource, is different modules to think about things from a critical lens, think about things from a postmodern lens and disruption. So I think all of that, it matters, and there's no absolute answer to it, and all of it you, we kind of need to keep going with. Absolutely, and I think it also goes into um, helping students see even just simple ways that they can be more inclusive with their language. I know I often talk um, with students about the ways that they spell the word women and the meaning behind spelling women with a Y or women with an X um, and having students feel the agency um, to spell word, women and other words um, in ways that are more inclusive. Um, but I totally agree, and oftentimes, anytime I present or have presented on this women in leadership cohort, um, inevitably one of the first questions is around, um, well, what about gender nonconforming or what about um, gender queer um, individuals? And so we have had to be really intentional in the ways that we market um, and and talk about the program um, and make it as inclusive as possible. I think it's something I've like appreciated so much about the text is that um, so the cover has the for those of you who've seen it um, has like the leadership labyrinth sort of idea of like that the path is not the same for every person and that we have to consider sort of all of these some of the things you all are mentioning and just other paths that people have. Um, it's not clear cut. It's not straightforward. The paths to leadership for some are more direct and for others lead nowhere and have some dead ends that they have to sort of turn around on and um, that finding that successful route is so personal and so um, specific to who you are and the identities that you hold and the um, the privileges that you may have been granted or not been granted um, that like the, that the obstacles are not the same for every person and neither are the opportunities and so I really I love that sort of metaphor that's weaved into the book as well um, that that the path is just different for, for different people, so. Well, I um, mentioned that I sometimes jump to action, but I have really been looking forward to this particular podcast because I um, have been so excited about putting some of these ideas into practice. So could you all share an experience of using one of the modules in your own teaching and facilitation? So Danielle and I had the opportunity to collaborate on three different modules um, for this facilitation resource. And it was such a good time both discussing with Danielle and thinking about the different ways that um, we wanted to envision and think about um, modules and, and how it would work with different populations. And then um, at the same time, having the opportunity to actually test it out in live form with the Women in Leadership cohort. Um, in particular. So I'll talk about one of the modules that we did. It was around um, kind of thinking about the ways that we're socialized around both gender and leadership in 
we used the lens of Audre Lorde's quote about the mythical norm, uh, which says somewhere on the edge of consciousness, there is what I call a mythical norm, which each of us within our own hearts know that is not me. It is with this mythical norms that the trapping of power resides within society. And so we use that as a lens to talk about the cycle of socialization um, and then ultimately the cycle of liberation as both gender and leadership are socially constructed. We also have the opportunity then to uh, re-socialize and think differently in terms of liberation. And I think the students responded really well um, to this module. They engaged in critical reflection. Um, it was applicable to students from a variety of different sort of knowledge base and experiences with some of these concepts. Um, and they could relate to both the content of the module, but also with each other in terms of um, the mythical norm that they all sort of uh, were socialized around, even though they had such different identities, backgrounds, and experiences. That sounds really amazing. I think um, I love utilizing the cycle of socialization because um, I think it just puts, it helps people to, to have a framework or a, a guide for sort of understanding, like people ask questions like, how do we end up here? Like how in the world did, does this thing happen? You know, this terrible thing. Um, and how do we get there? And to go through and say like, well, it's this cycle that we, you know, it's really difficult to break that is, um, you know, no action is action and sort of talking about like, there's not one thing, you know, you didn't, you didn't learn what you know about leadership or about your gender from one interaction. You learned it from thousands of tiny interactions, but it is amazing. Like you said, Adrian, that, um, that we end up sort of with this similar idea about what that should be and, and having to break that down because it happens over time and is so complex. There's not one thing you just pull out to say like, well, think about this differently. Um, it is, it's hard, it's hard to break, but it sounds like the students did a great job with that activity. Cool. Would someone else tell us about one of the other um, maybe modules that you've used and how it's worked for you? Sure, I'll jump in. This is Trisha, and I I have not gotten to use a lot of the facilitation resource yet because, you know, we we didn't have all of it either, uh, and I'm really excited to get my hands on it on a, in a physical way because I think it's going to be really amazing. Um, but I I did work with uh, Dr. Kathy Guthrie on a module that focuses on how you introduce the culturally relevant leadership learning module to students and then have kind of like a activity-based experiential immersion into having students wrap their brain around the different elements of that model. So that model um, has uh, different kind of, it's broken down into five different elements that students would need to understand about how the external environment influences their understanding of leadership identity development, uh, leadership capacity, and leadership efficacy. And so of those external five, I'll talk about one of them. Um, it's having students reflect on the idea of uh, the historic legacy of inclusion and exclusion at the institution. And so for this particular module, there are different activities that are going on all at the same time, and you put students in groups, and they do one activity that's focused on one thing, and then they go to the other. So for this focused activity, you have students go outside 
in the campus and walk around the physical campus to look at represent gendered representations of a historical, and I, I would also argue racialized and socioeconomic status, like where are the representations of access or not access to the institution that are physical in, um, and how do students kind of take note of that and what does that mean? And I think even in the time of COVID-19 where we may be teaching online and so our students aren't on our physical campus, this could still be an applied activity to go out onto the campus website and ask the same questions and say like, what do you notice um, about language? What do you notice about pictures? What do you notice about the space of what's represented on our campus? And what is the history of our campus? Go to our web page that says this is about who we are and what is that story? What is that narrative? And and who does it represent and who doesn't it? So that's an example of one small part of our module um, that I think um, I've applied it in my classroom. My students really enjoyed the idea idea of thinking about even everything that surrounds them in the day-to-day -day that they don't think about and what that means for how we make change for the future. Trisha, I love that. We, um, so I work, um, as I've said on the podcast already, at Clemson University, so a public land-grant institution in South Carolina, and so there is definitely some um, pretty as there is across many institutions, some um, difficult tasks to reconcile. You know, we are, um, our campus is on a former plantation, so sort of recognizing some of that history. And there has been a shout out to Dr. Rhonda Thomas at our institution who has done immense work to look at the, the history of our institution and sort of um, the history that's not always shared in the ways that you're mentioning, right? Like if, if on our website, we don't just come out and say, and we were founded on a plantation and, you know, but she has made a real effort to get some of that, um, that, that history really publicized. So with markers on our campus. And um, so if our students went out and did that activity, you know, they might see some of those things. Um, but I, the point I want to make is I think that that has done wonders for the population on our campus to realize ways to sort of understand um, their place, but then to also understand the ways that change can be made and has really empowered them um, to want to make more change, particularly our racially minoritized students on campus. Sort of they've had, um, I have seen immense change uh, in sort of attitudes and behaviors, particularly like what I would describe as leadership behaviors um, for that population over the 10 or so years I've been at Clemson. So I think that's really neat to, um, to have an opportunity for students to go out and do that. Yeah. And Trisha, I love that too, because I think that also even applies to like this digital space that we're in right now too. I was um, Googling the other day, great leaders in Google images for <laughs> a presentation that I was putting together. Um, and my blood started to boil when um, the search results on the, on the screen were solely men. So it was like, I was like, what's going on here? And you had to click on a tab that said female before you got to see any women leaders. And just thinking about the representation there and what messages you receive sort of in that digital space in terms of history of exclusion and inclusion, like um, there's lots of, of ways that that um, applies, not just to a physical campus, but also in our digital world. Absolutely. Well, I'm wondering if maybe we can dive into um, sort of a few themes of the module. Jennifer, um, 
Could you tell us about some of the ones that resonate for you and why you think that they're important for women in leadership development right now? Yeah, of course, Kate, like uh, choosing some of the themes I like perhaps better than others is like choosing between children. Um, so I really appreciate actually the flow of the, the modules. You know, they match, the, they follow the flow of Julie's main text. So um, I guess what I really want to say in this moment is um, just the important way in which um, the the facilitation resource and the main text end, and that is with a note of hope. Um, and I think, you know what, I'm always reminded of a story that Bell Hooks tells about how she spends a whole semester with her students. They, you know, they deconstruct reality and they realize that, you know, everything is, you know, endlessly interpretable and the students see power dynamics everywhere. And um, she had a student once tell her that, you know, I loved your class, but I don't think I can take you again because I, I just end up so depressed at the end. Um, <laughs> And yes. so she told that story at a, a lecture, maybe she's written about it too, that it really, um, it then shifted the way she taught, that she realized she couldn't just, um, just like tear apart everything like a student has known to be true, <laughs> or affirm the things they knew to be true, and then they feel even heavier because now they've been um, acknowledged and affirmed, um, that she needs to do something else about like leading people uh, at the, towards the end with a sense of agency and a sense of hope. So I really appreciate that, um, that the last set of modules really do look at that. So, you know, after we've told people about, like, why you should throw away the flyer for, you know, Danielle's, you know, uh, leadership with a women's touch workshop that she gets in the mail, and we hear about the pay gap, and we hear about socialization, and we hear about all these things, like, that I love that the last set of modules leave students with a sense of hope, a sense of agency, a sense of how they can continue to be involved in their own cycle of liberation, um, and really um, helping students, and therefore those of us who are also facilitating and accompanying students, like reminding us all that um, there is a hopefulness in this process, um, and that here are some tools and some ways to be in that process of hope and of action forward, um, both individually in our own internal processes, but also collectively in the communities uh, where we find ourselves. I so agree with that, Jennifer. And in fact, and we didn't talk about this in advance, but when I was making notes on this particular question about the themes, it, that's what I took notes on too, was how powerful it is to end the modules with this idea of hope and resiliency and that we have purpose for why we're doing this work and to be able to translate that to the students is so powerful. And if we aren't including that in, in our practice, um, then we're, yeah, we're doing our students a disservice. And so, I, I mean, some of the things that I just took notes on that are in that particular section are thinking about how students need to build resiliency, how students could respond to non-feminist perspectives, how they can relate to the idea of activist burnout and that that's a real thing and that we should acknowledge with students that they that, that that's okay to take time to take care of yourself and that we should be modeling that as leadership educators as well. And something that I've been reflecting on for a while in this group has actually heard me say this before, is the idea that our work right now is 
just a consistent practice. It's not an absolute thing that we're going to achieve at some moment and then it's a checklist and we've accomplished it. It is about the idea of the practice. And I think this, the, the, the facilitation resource really allows us to kind of dig into that with students. Yeah, and I think that the hope isn't a, like, we're just going to put a nice bow on this kind of hope. <laughs> it's hope that says, here's, like, as you were saying, Tricia, like, here are some tools, here are some ideas, here are some practices to help you keep moving forward over time, right? That, um, that, that, that it's a, it's a long-term process that we're engaged in, um, but it doesn't have to feel, um, overwhelming all the time would be my hope at least <laughs> right yeah i like the way um at least in in julie's text i read through it the the concept of sort of like self-care came up um and sometimes i feel like that's off in, in the same way that you describe like hope as this add-on at the end like we're going to tie it up nicely sometimes i feel like that in like programs that, that, oh we're also going to talk about like you we should take care of ourselves because, you know, you can't pour from an empty cup. And I totally believe that. Right. But like weaving it in as part of what we're doing versus it being an afterthought. Um, and I think I love your comments, Trisha, sort of thinking about like that if this is all an act of, of practice for us. And so how do we um, nourish ourselves in that practice as well um, so that we can remain full? Because, again, I do believe it's true. You can't pour from an empty cup. Well, I have um, sort of felt as I've read along um, with the text and then seen pieces of the facilitation resource that these have been a long time coming. <laughs> and I think we've touched on that, um, that the need for this is real. Um, and I'm thrilled that they're going to be released at the time where they are, where maybe we need them more than ever. We talked about some of the current events sort of in the world right now. And I'm curious how you all see the themes from the facilitation resource impacting how we talk about current events. Yeah, um, I think that one that feels particularly salient to me right this moment is the discourse around the um, potential running mate for um, the Democratic Party. And so just thinking about who might be tapped to be vice president, there's all this speculation about who's being vetted and who's being talked to and who's being prepared. Um, that That, I think, is a conversation that um, really hoping that the content that's in the facilitation resource gives people the language to speak about these things, especially alongside the book. And so just knowing that um, there's this expectation of, like, um, women um, deserve to be in these roles, absolutely, and they don't deserve to be in these roles just because they're women, um, and that if you put a woman in leadership, that doesn't mean that um, all women everywhere are on this are in this space or have this title um, or have access to it. I think that that's something that's important to, to think about. And it also doesn't mean that the way that one woman might operate as a potential vice president is going to be the way that all women might operate within that space too. And so not necessarily painting women as one um, social group as um, a monolith because that's not true. Um, and so giving people the the language to be able to fit in some of the nuance that might be present in that conversation. So they can look at the discourse, see it for what it really is, because we've seen certain words being put onto certain people, whether that person is aggressive or that person is um, dynamic, charismatic, 
um, dogged. We've seen lots of different terms being assigned um, to the different women who potentially might be um, a running mate. Um, and then also seeing how things like intersectionality are also present. Um, and so how race, um, how ability sex, how um, social class, how all of those things are also present as well. Um, and we really want folks to be able to engage with that, to see it for what it is, to see their own place within it, um, but then also knowing what they want to do with it. And so that I'm not just sitting here, okay, I see sexism rampant, all right, I'm just going to sit in this, but that they know what they want to do and what they're able to do in the face of that. Um, and so that I think is something that we're really hoping for um, when it comes to how this resource might, might prepare people or support them in engaging in some current events. I think jumping in off that, Danielle, is, is the idea that we really want to teach students to engage with paradox and hold multiple truths in their hands at the same time, which we know, you know, from student development theory is, is a tough space to be in um, for 18 to 22 year olds, but it's so necessary to recognize that the complexities of this situation, um, like Jennifer brought up at the beginning of the conversation, the presumptive non nominee for our democratic candidate is also been accused of sexual assault and is also said he's going to have a vice president for a woman as a running mate, right? So how, how, do we, how do we grapple with those conversations and do it in a way so students come to their own space about what they believe and what they think and, and recognize, again, going back to what is that paradox and how do you, um, how do you kind of marry all those things together in the messiness um, in the conversation? How about what you see with COVID-19 going on right now, right? We talked a little bit about that at the beginning. Are there um, intersections or themes from the guide that you see playing out right now with that particular crisis? I think, well, I can start with like a home-related a home reflection on that, <laughs> which is um, just seeing uh, – how, you know, as we said in the beginning, um, like what work looks like and what working from home looks like for many people um, and what responsibilities are uh, kind of how they're divided in a household in general, but then kind of maybe how they look even more so um, during a stay-at-home time, um, like gender-related roles at home. Um, I happen to be in a in a two mom household with a one child and, and there's still like, there's still a bunch, right? We're just figuring out how to make it happen. Um, but what I'm feeling related to COVID-19 is trying to maintain my professional work, trying to maintain my role as a director of a center responsible for eight people. Um, like how do I do that when I'm also trying to like run, be part of running a household, be part of, teaching an eight-year-old and I'm not I was called to teach 20 to 24 year olds <laughs> I was not called to teach eight-year-olds so um, so that's a personal reflection about your question but I've really been trying to be transparent with my staff uh, about this idea of what does it mean to try to exercise leadership in this time and how is gender wrapped into that um, 
And so it's been cool to be kind of in a, a working experimental environment um, with my staff. So not necessarily getting to talk about that with students, but getting to talk about that uh, with peers. Um, and so that's that's kind of one one reflection. Um, I think the news tells us some other stuff about about power and inequality. Um, and Danielle had some really awesome things to say about what feminism challenged us to do. Uh, I don't know if you feel like you could offer those today, Danielle. I think that um, feminism does require us to think about gender and power, um, and that when we are in um, situations where there might be some unspoken rules about who does what or how people show up, that we're able to not just see it at the face, um, but that we're able to kind of dig deep and see how um, things like sexism, racism, classism, um, really create this kind of mold, this mythical norm maybe even, that we feel like we need to position ourselves to be in. Um, and how that for a lot of people is also tied to burnout. Um, and so what does it mean for me to feel like I need to show up a certain way to my staff that I might supervise or to the students that I might be working with, even as I'm saying, I really need to care for you because I don't know what you might be going through. Um, and so what does it mean for us to practice, I think, authenticity in navigating those truly problematic systems. Um, as educators, I do not have any simple answers to that, um, but I think that uh, what feminist practice asks us to do is to continue to reflect and to adapt and to change and to pivot based on what we see, what we're reflecting on, um, and how we can move towards a world that's more just and more liberatory for the people that are, that are in it. So if anyone has any answers, this is your time to share with the group um, how we might go about that work. Well, I certainly don't have any answers, but you've given uh, a lot to think about. So thank you for that. I um, I keep thinking sort of with this COVID-19 situation, I think it came up at the beginning of sort of some of these female leaders who are being held up as, as quote unquote, doing a better job um, than other folks. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about you know, I think that they are all incredible women, but is it that they are, you know, are, are we putting them on a pedestal? And is is that a bad thing or a good thing? Um, is it really that they're they're better leaders, or is it that they're being in that position of power in their culture or society or nation, indicative of a culture that is um, better able to? appreciate diverse perspectives at the table, right? I think some of it's just that who is at the table and who is not um, in making decisions has been uh, very clear to me. You know, I, not to call attention to our own government, um, but I, you know, look at press conferences and look at the, the COVID task force that's in place in our own nation, and um, there's a clear lack of diversity at that table. Um, and so whose perspectives are we missing and then what policy is being put into place that's going to have an impact on, you know, all people. But in this context, thinking about like women across our nation, and if women are not at the table as a part of those decisions, um, that matters. And so I've been thinking a lot about a lot about that, and sort of trying to break down what is it about what other countries are doing that's um, more successful. And I, I do think part of it is the willingness to um, have diverse perspectives at the table. 
Well, our time, unfortunately, is running low. Um, we ended last week with the panelists asking me how storytelling and listening stories has contributed to my ability to, to sustain hope. Um, and we ended week one talking about hope. And I, uh, I think that theme has also come up here a number of times. Um, and I appreciate that. And I appreciate, Jennifer, your thought about it. It doesn't need to be that we're trying to wrap it up with a bow and make it pretty, but we do have to, in order to make change, we, we have to be hopeful that we can. Um, so as we close the conversation, I'd love to hear from each of you a word or a phrase that, that reflects what's possible for women and leadership in the coming year. This is Trisha, and I'll jump in first and say I think what's possible for women in leadership in the coming year, the word that comes to mind initially is a disruption, which maybe y'all can sense a theme in my narrative, um, but disruption <laughs> and change. Beautiful. I think one that comes up for me is from a, you know, very prolific philosopher, Ariana Grande. Um, I think that her song, Thank You Next, was life-giving to me in a lot of ways. But I think that phrase of just thank you next means that we get to um, read and learn the lessons from um, scholars, women in the past and the things that they brought us, things that they taught us, whether there were lessons that we really should take with us or things that we maybe needed to leave where they were. And we get to focus on what's next. What other conversations do we need to be having to make our work more robust, more liberatory? Um, and so just thank you. Thank you to all the scholars, the pioneers of the field. And next, what's next? What conversations are we going to be moving towards as we continue our work? Love that. I think um, I think for me, what feels right to say today is like um, bigger, uh, more and more and bigger and bigger. I guess is um, and, and thinking about uh, how do we help and accompany students in seeing themselves. The more, the more that they can do and be. Um, how can they be bigger and bigger in the world? And I personally just continue to ask myself the same things as a person in process, um, you know, and a person growing in leadership and in, in the multiple dimensions of my own identity. So uh, bigger, bigger, more and more. So many, so many good ones. It's a lot of pressure. Um, I think for me, uh, the word or the phrase that's sort of coming to mind for me is sort of uh, taking up space, I think, and being unapologetic in doing that. I think women have a lot of wonderful ideas. Uh, they have a lot of skills and lots of different things to contribute to conversations, to problems. And when, um, and when women are included at the table, as you were saying, that um, the possibilities are so great um, and that if we really want to move towards justice and equity, we have to have all voices and all people represented um, in order to make that happen. Wonderful. Well, I so appreciate you all and your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. So, um, Thank you, Danielle, Jennifer, Adrian, and Trisha for being here with us, for helping to wrap up this series. Um, and until next time.